Software Engineering Radio, Episode 91, Kevlin Henny on C++. This is Software Engineering Radio, the podcast for professional developers, on the web at se-radio.net. SE Radio brings you relevant and detailed discussions and interviews on software engineering topics every 10 days. Thanks to our audience and the partners listed on our website for supporting the podcast. Hello, this is another episode of Software Engineering Radio. Before we get to the actual content of this episode, I do have a couple of announcements. Thanks to Milko Stocker, SE Radio now has a web shop. It's a cafe press shop where you can buy coffee mugs and t-shirts and stuff with the SE Radio logo on it. Uh, please go there, get it, and do some advertising for SE Radio. So here is a heads up about the SE Radio Get Together 2008, our open space conference organized together with Dpunkt and sponsored by EX. Magazine for, uh, magazine for Professional IT or Magazine for Professional Informationstechnik. Um, the conference will not be, you know, it will not be presentations. Rather, it will be open space discussions. So we need you guys to come and bring with you interesting discussion topics. You actually have to submit a little position paper, like a one-page small pamphlet um, that talks about interesting things we could discuss. Um, you should submit this until... Uh, June 1st um, to a team at seradio.net and you will get notified until June 15th whether your paper is accepted and whether hence you can come to the conference. We expect most papers to be accepted unless we have way too many uh, registrations. We actually need to have about 70 people. So why don't you go to the se-radio.net website and uh, on the left side there is a link. You can click it and you'll get all the details, a nice PDF about the uh, get-together. Um, yeah, we'll, we're looking forward to actually meeting you there. This is Arno speaking, and I'm interviewing Kevin Henney on C++. We're sitting at Europlop 2007 in Bavaria, having a good time. Kevin, would you like to start by saying a few words about yourself? Hi, yes. Um, Kevin Henney. Uh, I'm an independent uh, consultant and trainer. I'm based in the UK. Um, more generally... Um, the thing of interest, I guess, is my background in C++. Um, I stumbled into C++ sort of by accident um, sometime around 1990 um, and uh, growing interest in object orientation at that time. Um, pursued that uh, to the point that it was professionally useful and uh, followed through on a number of things, writing articles um, from the early 90s onwards, um, getting involved in the standardization process through the um, British Standards Institute, and that was around the mid-90s. Um, and uh, pretty much that has uh, characterized my work. Um, uh, I guess probably the 1990s would be the right way of looking at it. I still uh, have a great deal of involvement with C++ projects, um, uh, but uh, in terms of my writing, I guess that is not as uh, C++-focused as it used to be. Uh, and in terms of standardization, um, I still um, stand back from the standardization process a little bit, but I'm still uh, partly involved with it. Yeah, we'll get into that standardization stuff later on, I guess. Um, the reason we're doing this episode on C++ is basically that some of our listeners felt 
that we were too Java-centric and sort of treated C++ as being dead. But, well, C++ is sort of alive and kicking is just not as much um, represented in media. So, um, would you say, what do you say if someone told you C++ is obsolete? Is it? Um, well, there's two answers to that, really, aren't there? Um, there's the yes answer and there's the no answer. Uh, let's start with the yes answer. Yes, C++ is obsolete. Um, but uh, so is Java, uh, so is C-sharp, uh, so is Ruby, and you, you can pick any language. This is a standard language war debate. That doesn't generally uh, um, help people and tends to add more darkness than light. Um, so where is it not where where is it not obsolete? Let's understand that um, although we try sometimes to simplify uh, the idea of programming language movements and say everybody is doing language A and no longer doing language B, it's never that simple. Um, the landscape is uh, at uh, the very least two-dimensional, very complex. Um, people in one corner don't necessarily have anything to do with people elsewhere. Um, their needs are often very different. Get two arbitrary software developers together. And uh, you will find that um, their problem spaces are typically quite different. Their uh, basic vocabulary set, their uh, development processes, and so on. So in that sense, um, C++ does not have the role that it used to. So it can be said to be obsolete for some roles. Um, and some of these have been um, displaced by, uh, in places, Java. Um, and in other places uh, by C-sharp, and in other places by uh, languages like Ruby and Python, and uh, so on. Um, and there are also roles that C++ has never really had any weight in and have grown in the last 10 years, so it is very unlikely you'll find a lot of web programmers um, dealing with that. But again, that concept of web programming really did not exist um, uh, in the form we recognize it now, um, say 10 years ago. Um, but where is C++ actually picking up? That's the interesting question because, as I said, I do, I still do quite a lot of C++ work. Um, my work divides between um, C++, Java, a little bit of C Sharp, and various other languages, um, development process and design and so on. But the C++ stuff has shifted. It is noticeable. I'm not seeing many people creating um, general uh, application UIs in C++. Um, I might actually personally say is a slight relief. Um, but what I am seeing them doing is there is a, a focus. More and more people are concerned with um, applications that are reaching um, uh, very large scales, um, high performance needs, and so on. It's kind of the software that you don't see, the software that is routing the traffic around the planet uh, type software. There is, uh, and there's a, a great deal of emphasis on that, where people care about performance, they care about the byte level control, they care about talking to the metal, if you like. Um, but at the same talking, at the same time, talking to the metal is no longer a simple case of lashing together some uh, assembler code or even C code. You need a way of building um, something that is sustainable with a large team of developers and has quite rich concepts. And that uh, appears to be where C++ is gaining ground. You have the area of um, uh, algorithm uh, expression and research, which is... Um, not something that other languages are necessarily uh, uh, well-suited to in the mainstream. And uh, there's a sort of growth in this area where people are actually saying, well, if I'm looking at uh, uh, some number crunching, I care about the performance, I care about the structure of the algorithm. These things um, uh, combine, and 
um, languages like Java have shown they're not really quite up to this um, in their style. Their style actually lies elsewhere. Their strengths are elsewhere. Uh, but you're not going to find C++ developers sitting there um, doing spring-like applications. Or rather, if they are, then they're going to spend a lot longer doing it than their colleagues. But what we're seeing is there's growth elsewhere. It's even actually been reused um, or reinstituted, sorry, in a number of cases as a teaching language. Um, uh, the uh, the landscape on teaching languages is no longer as clear as it used to be. Um, uh, the, the field has muddied a bit. Some people are exploring the use of dynamic languages. Um, other universities are sticking very much with their Java curriculum. Some have favored uh, C-sharp and so on. Um, but some have actually uh, retaken the decision to go to C++, partly because they're finding that it Although it's complex, it offers them more of what they want to teach computer science graduates. You can point to pretty much anything. And that's uh, a figurative statement as well as a literal one. You've mentioned this a couple of times now, that C++, C++ is um, viable for things you cannot do with some other languages. What is so special about the language? What, is, what's, what about its range of features? What makes it applicable to a wider range of, of features, of, of problems be it for implementation, be it at the teaching level? Partly it's its history. Um, every language has a, um, a history and a soft spot, um, therefore. Um, where C++ comes from um, is, is, one, is one thing to say that C++ evolved from C. Um, that uh, statement is certainly true, but it, it fails to tell you why, and it fails to tell you what the focus was. And the focus there, uh, Bjarne Straustrup was originally uh, looking at this, it was, uh, it's a systems language. That is what he wanted to express. This is what um, he wanted to uh, uh, provide, a systems language um, that had facilities that were um, more sophisticated than those available in C, which was the um, systems uh, language of emerging choice at the time, uh, the late 70s, early 80s. And so from that point of view, he wanted to be able to talk about um, programs from a slightly different perspective. Although um, C gives us a, uh, sort of a structured programming language with uh, the basic sort of notions of uh, uh, structured data um, in direction, uh, allows us to abstract the specifics of the machine um, uh, to the point that we are talking about pointers and not addresses. Um, there's, a, there's a whole load of um, uh, pain that uh, you no longer have to go through. Having been a systems programmer in Fortran, the move to C was a, a welcome relief. So a better alignment. So we, we had that with C. Now what is it that C++ gives us? Well, um, it gives us... It, continues that progression. Why merely have structured data when we can have um, a more a rich vocabulary and say our program is composed of stuff, stuff has behavior, and recognize that we want constructs um, that allow us to uh, freely change our minds about data structure. If we're talking about a systems language, it's actually quite important um, to have that, uh, as it were, byte-level control. But it's also important to be able to change your mind, given that uh, data structure volatility, uh, you know, okay, that was a good idea, but let's change the data structure, but I still want the same operations. But how do I do that and not uh, incur an abstraction penalty? So that notion has always been there. So to go back to um, the question, what we see is that the tradition of C++ is as a systems language. A systems language is a language in which you can build pretty much anything. Um, that and, and you can control the parameters that you care about. 
Now, um, that obviously means that you have a great deal of power. It doesn't necessarily mean that it is the right tool for every job. It doesn't necessarily mean that every job is easy, um, but it ultimately means that every job is possible at that level. It does also bring with it a certain culture, which is why you don't um, uh, see um, C++ developers necessarily pursuing um, the same uh, interests and framework styles as you find in other um, uh, in other spaces, such as Java and C Sharp, and uh, you, there's a very rich world of open source software um, where we see uh, both activity but also differences. We see uh, some very big differences in um, focus. So I'm not actually interested in seeing um, C++ developers trying to create um, uh, spring-like frameworks or anything like that. I'm much more interested in working with its sweet spot, which is that, that area of systems programming. Um, I don't really want to teach people to script in C++. We've already got perfectly good languages for that. But if you, um, uh, if you start thinking about wanting to create the plumbing for an image processing system, I probably want to be expressing my algorithms in C++. Okay, you've been talking about this evolution. C++ as a systems language that used to be, or what, that does what used to be done in C, and um, how was, what was the evolution actually? I mean, C++ started as a preprocessor front-end for C, if I recall correctly, but then sort of evolved away from that with standardiz standardization process. What were those, those steps and where is it today? I think we can characterize the um, history of C++ um, in... I used to characterize it in three ages, but we're now reaching the point where it's worth starting to think about characterizing uh, in four ages. If we start off with the earliest um, stage, the, uh, the stage that goes from really the creation of the language um, through to uh, the late 80s, and circa 1990, um, this uh, early stage was characterized by the uh, original name of the language, C with classes. And um, the idea, although one can look at it in terms of a preprocessor, it was or has always pretty much been a uh, compiled language. It just chooses to spit out, uh, chose to spit out, sorry, its um, uh, C code at the back end originally. And this was the AT&T, uh, what came to be the AT&T uh, C front compiler. Now, in that point of view, the the primary approach there that was favored was uh, a uh, style of object orientation um, uh, sort of borrowed from Simula um, uh, that was characterized by, say, single inheritance, um, a sort of simple public-private model, um, presence of classes and virtual functions and uh, features such as that. A few other little ideas borrowed in from um, Algol 68, some operator overloading, things like that. Um, all uh, served up, as it were, on a sort of a, a, a C um, uh, uh, infrastructure, a sort of classic source file model that existed and uh, continues to exist. Um, and that really characterizes the early age of C++. Now, it starts coming into its own right. People start tackling certain problems. They understand the style of a language. Every language has a style and a, uh, and a way of designing that is encouraged. And what emerged was the there were other aspects, there were other regularity aspects in the language. The, um, uh, the, there were uh, ideas that took us into, as it were, the second age of C++, which is actually when it, it uh, grew most. Um, although uh, templates and exceptions were sort of there, they were, only, they were sort of uh, not as widely supported. And what we can actually say is that in this period of the second, second age of C++, 
the there was the greatest diversity in uh, portability, or well, put another point, having lived through it, lack of portability. Um, <laughs> that was the biggest problem: the divergence between various compilers. But part of that was learning what the language felt like to be on its own. Little things like the introduction of new fundamental types, because overloading makes it a different language to see. You can no longer merely say that. Uh, booleans are like um, uh, can be like integers and vice versa. Uh, you actually have to distinguish between them at a, a, in a, com a meaningful compile time fashion because that is the character of the language. Um, other aspects, multiple inheritance uh, were introduced. Um, uh, let me think. We had uh, uh, pure virtual functions allowing abstract classes. So a lot more things started creeping in from people's. Um, design thinking and re uh, realization of what a C++ system might look like uh, as it uh, grew larger. So it was a working with the language and gave feedback on that. But there was also this rate of change. Now, the consolidations happened in the third age of C++, uh, what we might characterize as modern C++, um, which really is sort of uh, 1997, 1998 um, onwards. Um, the, what characterizes this uh, period is the standard. Um, the standard library, um, the uh, uh, international standard of the language. Um, this presence has actually made quite a big difference to the way that people perceive it, and um, many people have been surprised by uh, how successful it's, this has been in helping to converge over time the uh, divergent uh, platforms that we had. There was a lot of C++ compatibility issues as I mentioned before. This has made a big difference. It also helped influence people um, to recognizing uh, the, the language in its own right. Historically, people used to teach C++ um, kind of the way they learned it. You know, they learned C, then they learned objects, then they learned C with objects, so to speak, um, and as the language evolved, they would teach you the more, they teach you the features in the order that they'd learnt them. A very good example of this is the introduction of uh, templates. Although they were introduced early, they came into their own and really found their style and space um, uh, through the uh, standardization of the language. Um, and that and uh, things like the standard template library really um, characterize that. Now, what we find is that um, historically, in the early 90s, uh, people would put, uh, if they were authors, would write books on C++, and the last chapter would probably be on templates. Um, uh, training courses would uh, do follow a similar idea, and templates would be on the advanced course. You'd never do them on the introductory course. Um, and you'd have styles like that, and uh, then the, there might be a chapter on the standard libraries. That started emerging, and that would probably be one of the appendices, or maybe one of the last chapters. So people taught this in that order, which is actually quite peculiar, because... Many of these things, if I had to, uh, what, we, what we actually saw in that period was a shift from um, C programmers moving to C++ to um, non-C programmers uh, with a very different background. Um, people that uh, looked at pointers um, not as a natural mode of expression and syntax, but with some suspicion and fright. So you suddenly realize, okay, well, this is a different constituency, and we have... Uh, and in the library, we have um, a simple string type. Okay, so to not be taught the string type until the last thing was a very curious thing, but again, it was historical. It sort of makes it harder to write Hello World. <laughs> oh, there were lots of challenges to Hello World and, uh, uh, and uh, uh, Goodbye C++ was uh, the uh, immediate response of many people. Uh, it was a very... 
it was, a, it was a quite a strange time where people were realigning themselves and saying, well, actually, the way to teach C++ um, is to teach C++, not uh, follow this historical progression. Um, uh, there's no denying that there is complexity in some of the template stuff, but at the same time, there's no denying that there is complexity in any feature. The simple template stuff is simple. The hard template stuff is hard. So instead of shoving it at the back of the course, you bring it to the front. Um, and I was involved in a training company in the late 90s where we sort of dealt with this issue. We turned it around and one of the first courses to actually do this, to actually teach from day one, um, here's a string object. And uh, don't worry about the underlying strings uh, types. We'll get to uh, char pointers later. Um, and uh, here is a vector. Don't worry about what those angle brackets are. Just read it as of. So that's a vector of int. What can you do with it? Oh, you can resize it. Can you? Okay, that's good. Can you uh, Can you assign it? Yes, you can. It does everything you expect. Can you subscript it? Does it know how big it is? The answers to all of the above are yes. So we start with that idea. And you don't need to teach templates at that level. It's this notion of usage versus um, uh, uh, plumbing. And you don't need to be a plumber in order to use a tap. So the point uh, that has emerged um, since is that many there are many, many people who have approached C++ from um, a historically very different perspective from the one where many people went off and explored other languages. And that third age has also coincided with a growth um, of networking software and a growth of um, uh, embedded software and so on, which is one of the things that has... Uh, helped keep um, C++ um, sort of fairly alive and popular, um, but not in a way that is, um, how shall I put it, sexy and fashionable. Uh, yeah, it's not necessarily sexy and fashionable, but as with fashion, if we look at uh, if we look at the world of fashion for inspiration, because um, it is somewhat like software development, when we find uh, that there is somebody walking on a catwalk and we see what they're wearing, it is very unlikely that the regular person in the street will be wearing that. <laughs> Although it's where the news is, it's not what people are actually wearing. People are wearing jeans and T-shirts, and they are uh, getting on with things that solve that particular uh, problem space. And um, and sometimes that is uh, C++, sometimes it is um, obscure homegrown languages, sometimes it is uh, um, uh, Java, sometimes it is one of a thousand uh, different scripting languages. It may even be COBOL, but uh, it's the jeans and T-shirts. That's where it is. Is. Which brings us to the fourth age, which um, is the the next standard. The next standard ha is uh, in the process of being finalised. Um, we're looking at 2009, and. Introduces, based on experience, not only a, a larger range of libraries, but also some um, language, core language enhancements. Um, mostly, well, from anybody else's point of view, it'll mostly be in the area of uh, templates and the type system that templates deal with. And again, that will give rise to a different style and a different approach, and we can characterize that, as it were, as a, a fourth age that's coming. Um, We're planning a separate episode on that. Quite interesting topic, but it's sort of. Um goes beyond the scope of what we're talking about now. That saves me a bit of hassle and uh, Bjarne can get to talk about it. Um, and we can also set them up quite nicely here because um, uh, what is interesting, the way I used to characterize the first three ages of C++ is they roughly correspond to an edition of Bjarne's book. <laughs> first, second and third editions. So uh, I, I'm, I'm eagerly awaiting the fourth edition. Uh, I know Bjarne's working on another book at the moment, but uh, the, 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 he's got a couple of years to catch up on the uh, standard. Okay, but you mentioned a couple of the features now and I, I know you long enough to, well, be pretty sure that you that C++ is one of the languages that you love. So, 
uh, looking at these different types of, of things you can do with C++, I mean, it's a multi-paradigm language. Why don't we take a look at some of the features and you tell us um, what's great about them, what's special about them, how it differentiates C++ from what you can do in more boring, more down-to-earth languages that maybe look sexier but don't get the job done as well. So let's start with templates. So what's great about templates? The length of the error messages. Uh, okay, that's the cynical response. Yeah, let's let's get that one out of the way. Um, templates uh, can be potentially challenging. What is what is great about templates? Um, well, we can um, talk. We can state a number of facts. Here's a, here's a couple of facts. The template system um, uh, is uh, actually uh, sort of Turing complete. You can actually uh, it's a programmable system. Um, it's an interesting side effect. It was never really intended, but uh, you can perform calculations in it. This allows you to um, do things at compile time that uh, give you no runtime overhead. It allows you to express and use the same kinds of uh, abstraction sophistication at compile time that don't um, uh, you don't really want to sit in the runtime or would traditionally be done in another language or external tool, uh, external configuration tool. Obviously the downside to this is um, the uh, uh, subtlety in, uh, of some of the expressions and also some of the sophistication you need to have to understand what's going on uh, and the ability to read angle brackets. Um, but uh, given the prevalence of XML these days, I I'm less concerned about that than I used to be. So it boils down to templates are great because they allow you compile time optimizations of performance of memory footprint that you wouldn't be able to have otherwise because, because you'd have to have the generalization in the code and incur the runtime overhead. That's part of it, but there's also something more than that. It's actually it's not just the uh, it's not just a speed factor. It's the ability to express certain ideas, relationships between types, um, at a, in a compile time way. We can actually see uh, perhaps one of the ways of looking at the templates. I mean, normally when people say templates, the the usual uh, expectation is that somebody's going to talk about containers. Yes, this is all certainly true. Uh, the container library and um, uh, many aspects like smart pointers. We rely on those for um, templating, but the that is basic generics. That's sort of your introductory level generics. This is the kind of thing that people normally think of as being generics. Let's put it this way. That is the beginning of the idea of a generic system, not the end, whereas many languages... Um, in spite of the uh, experience um, that it is around uh, about using uh, generic type systems, many languages introduce a generic type system and it stops pretty much with the um, the collections and things and it doesn't go much further. What you have in C++ is that that is just the beginning. So the notion I've just described, all this other stuff, is metaprogramming at the template level. I wouldn't necessarily encourage everybody to do it. In fact, I spend a great deal of time discouraging people from doing it. Um, it is, uh, it is, can be frighteningly uh, obscure at times and also uh, surprisingly unnecessary. But as a tool, when it's needed, it, it does offer you the way of describing at compile time relationships between types, values that you need, uh, something that other languages have a capability for through runtime reflection, but what we're talking about here is, as it were, a compile type view. And perhaps that's the best way of looking at the C++ template system. It is a static version of what many people see in dynamic type, uh, dynamically typed languages. Um, it is based on a, uh, historically it's based on duck typing, for want of a better term, the, uh, the notion of, um, the notion that uh, uh, if it looks like a duck and uh, sounds like a duck and it waddles like a duck, then it's a duck. It, you no longer have to say that um, 
to perform the capability of foo, you have to inherit from class foo. Um, you just say, if it looks like it does foo, then it does foo. So that is the notion that we have, but it's um, what uh, somebody once described as frozen small talk. What it's done is it's frozen at compile time. Of course, that doesn't give you the general flexibility, but it does give you um, some of, for some of the things that people want and they want them at compile time, given that there is a notion of compile time, and they want them in a way that uh, allows them to control the bits, the bytes, the performance, and so on, and these are the people that care, then having this mechanism is incredibly powerful. The challenge is that the language was not originally designed for this, or the temp sorry, the template mechanism was not originally designed for this. Um, so it, it strains a little to express some of the concepts, and it requires a certain amount of ingenuity. And, uh, you can see some of that ingenuity in a variety of publications, uh, and also a certain amount of published code, uh, such as the Boost libraries, um, in order to make these things work. What we're seeing in the next generation of C++ is uh, an acknowledgement of the power of these, but also a, a type system, as it were. One of the things that most duck type systems suffer uh, from, and uh, this uh, I refer to dynamic languages as well as the statically compiled ones, um, is there's no duck. Um, I'm unable to point to the duck and name the duck. I merely, uh, I, it's an idea. Um, I cannot name it within the programming system. So it's really a type system uh, for templates that we're looking at in the future. But that notion of templates allows the expression of things like the standard template library, and um, it's a radically different style of programming. It's not a sort of classic OO style at all. Um, and to be, I guess to be honest, if uh, the STL hadn't come along, it's unlikely I would still be doing C++. Um, there's really weird stuff you can do with C++ templates that go way beyond, for example, the Java generics, which are well, something entirely different. But in C++, you can, for example, inherit, a class can inherit from a template parameter. Do you know of any example where that is useful? Yeah, there's a number of uh, frameworks where what you're effectively trying to do um, is take a class and inject behavior into its base class. Um, and this has been used in a few places. There's um, uh, examples can be found in Microsoft's ATL where what you're doing is you provide a, a base, uh, you provide some kind of class and it's parameterized with respect to something else that it inherits from. It gets these features. As we're at a patents conference, it's probably appropriate to point out that the, this technique is um, very similar to an idea of template method. Whereas traditionally the template method uh, pattern can be expressed using um, a, uh, a, a base class where you uh, provide some hooks for behavior and you provide a well-defined um, uh, method which has got some kind of algorithm. In C++, what you can do is freeze this at compile time. So it's not the runtime performance that I'm after. I don't want a runtime hook method in that sense. My member functions are actually well known. The situation is well defined with, with respect to this framework. I don't want any runtime lookup. I want a distinct and definite type that I want to manipulate. And what you do is you allow yourself to put the behavior into the base class and uh, and notionally override it upside down by using this technique. So yes, there are applications um, of this technique, and um, I w this is it's a surprising one when you first see it. It's not a technique I would expect to see in every application, but at the same time, it's not something that is obscure or academic. There's genuinely practical applications of it. 
Another controversial feature in C++ is operator overloading. What's your take on that? Is it useful or does it do more harm than it does good? Well, there's a number of different ways of looking at this one. Um, first of all, let's uh, understand what it is that you get for your money. Um, with operator overloading, you are talking about taking the existing set of operators uh, in the language and being able to overload them um, for uh, types that you have defined, or someone has defined, and um, provide appropriate behavior for them. Things you cannot do is extend the range of operators uh, in the language. Um, there are some languages that allow you to do this, and uh, it has not proven to be useful. It allows people to go off and create their own private uh, dialects, uh, better known as idiolects, uh, where one person thinks it's an absolutely brilliant idea to add an operator to a language, and everybody else thinks it's one of the craziest things out, and it reduces the comprehensibility of code. So, no, C++ doesn't allow you to do that. Of course, it does allow you to get kind of a bit clever, and the point is there's no constraint on the semantics you provide for your operator overloads. But C++ is actually in the majority um, of languages, as it were, that have popularity these days. Um, there are very few languages that don't support some form of operator overloading. Even scripting languages are actually more able um, uh, to do this than uh, many mainstream languages a few years ago. Um, the desire to not support operator overloading um, was motivated and uh, carried through in Java, partly because you can indeed write obscure um, code. Uh, you, may, you can end up with some crazy stuff where somebody goes A plus B minus C, and you look at that and you think, okay, what am I looking at? Ah, right, what you're looking at is a database transaction and then a final commit. It's like, nope, no, I don't see that. Of course, this does not stop, you know, this is, this is not really a very uh, sound objection um, uh, for a number of reasons. First of all, um, I've seen a lot of code. I do code reviews, and I've seen code in various languages. And uh, I'm impressed with what people are able to do um, with just ordinary named uh, uh, functions um, that completely mislead and uh, hide their meaning. So what is it that operator overloading is supposed to give me? What's the value proposition? If I want to add two things together that are intrinsically addable, they are value types of some kind, whether they represent money, uh, monetary quantities, whether they represent physical quantities, uh, measurements, and so on, then, and I want to add them, then I want to see A plus B. I do not want to see A dot add brackets B brackets. I want to see A plus B plus C. I do not want to see A dot add brackets B dot add brackets C close brackets. And uh, I don't want to see this kind of stuff. It's clumsy and unwieldy. And um, advocates of this position have very little to stand on um, for a very simple point of view. Uh, I have a five-year-old son. And uh, he, can read a, he, can, he can read a plus symbol, and he knows what it means. And uh, he can't spell plus, he can't spell addition, he can't spell subtraction, but he knows what a minus sign is, and he's got a rough idea of what it might mean. So he's five years old, and he's able to understand these operators. Apparently, uh, there are a bunch of people at Sun who don't think that uh, developers understand this stuff. Uh, it's a little bit patronizing uh, from my point of view. Much as I love the Java language, it is a bit patronizing. Um, if I want to add two concepts together, I want to be given the operator. There's already a name for the idea. It's not ADD, and there's a plus symbol for it. Um, if I want to subscript into something that represents a collection of things that is based on a key or an index, I want to use my square brackets because that's what the language says. I talked earlier on of a language having a particular style, 
And when I'm working with that language, then subscript, subscript is the way of doing that. Plus is the way of doing certain things. Assigned is the way of doing others. The arrow operator is the way of accessing a level of indirection. Plus plus is the way I move to the next thing, whatever it is the next thing is in a sequence. There's a set of conventions that govern this. And of course, people can try to go against conventions. There are cases where this works, but most cases don't. Um, there are, uh, this is what, um, this is more about development process and development maturity than it is about the language. I think people incorrectly blame the language for these features. Now I will just close, all, uh, close that uh, discussion on operator overloading with some of the more, uh, the, some of the wilder uses and um, actually say that in some cases these are justified. There is a minority of cases where almost creating a private language does make sense and um, the uh, current growth um, current growth in uh, the idea of domain-specific languages and also in particular um, embedded um, uh, or internal domain-specific languages where we create a uh, sort of mini-language within a language um, can actually go, goes back uh, decades, certainly to the LISP community, but has been represented in some of the more powerful languages over time. The current language of choice uh, for many people is Ruby. Um, but this, this history also exists within C++, and the idea is that the template facilities combined with many of the operator overloading facilities allow you to create effectively a private domain-specific language in the context of C++, and there's a great deal of exploration of this. Um, the generative programming book uh, a few years ago uh, sort of demonstrated some of the techniques. Um, and at this point, uh, there are a number of um, uh, libraries that express uh, certain ideas um, that are, um, well, let me pick on a very simple one. The Boost Spirit Library um, is a language in which you can define the uh, grammar of a language and uh, parse it. Now, traditionally, this would be done by separating out your tools, your Lexignac, your antlers, or whatever, and uh, having uh, different build steps. Now I can actually represent the syntax of the language in something that actually looks like BNF um, in C++ and actually treat that as an object, compose my syntax, treat it as an object, hook events to it, and basically run um, a parser off this. Now that's pretty cool. Um, there are um, this use of, uh, I, I understand that Martin Fowler coined the term a couple of years ago, of, uh, fluid interfaces where you have this ability to chain things. When you have uh, chain method calls, when you have a language that supports operator overloading and templates, you can do this um, uh, quite extensively and there's a great deal of experience in the um, sort of certain parts of the C++ world in creating uh, libraries in this particular style. Um, uh, but of course there is always the question of taste and judgment and that can sometimes push operator overloading just a little bit too far. Okay, another of the controversial features in C++ is multiple implementation inheritance. What's your take on that? Um, I don't particularly have a great problem with it, um, uh, but it used to be one of these um, uh, issues that would polarize people um, in a very strong way. Um, sort of, uh, uh, you know, do you use Vi or Emacs kind of question. Um, you know, uh, without any rationale, people would get very, very uh, hot under the collar. Um, multiple inheritance makes things certainly more complex in the language um, from the point of view of the compiler writer, um, and it makes things... Um, uh, can make things more complex from the point of view of the developer. If the developer does not have 
a reasoned way of thinking about uh, multiple inheritance and applying it, then they are looking at it as a just a language mechanism. They're not really thinking about it as a design tool. In truth, I find I don't really use multiple inheritance of implementation very much at all, and I would struggle to think of many cases where I do. The um, style that is popular um, in uh, language design, say, from early mid-90s onwards, and we see it manifested in Java and C-sharp, is that you have a dominant uh, class, and then you have interfaces that are mixed in. Um, I find that I use that style quite a lot, um, and occasionally my mix-ins will have a little bit of behavior, but not often. And that's partly to do with the style of design and an approach, and having a clear sort of uh, design style and vision. What people have struggled with with multiple inheritance is that they were originally presented with um, multiple inheritance as an implementation idea. They were given it as a mechanism. Here is a language feature. Um, and if you take that, that's kind of designing the wrong way around. Um, it doesn't solve a problem. It's a case of I'm wandering around with a solution that has a lot of mechanics and plumbing, and uh, I'm looking for ways to apply it. And that, I have certainly seen that in code bases. I'm probably guilty of having used that uh, uh, many, many, many years ago. But uh, I would always advocate the ability to be able to multiply, multiply inherit, even though I would not advocate its common use. Um, it's the idea that... In some cases, when you are trying to bring together um, two pieces of code, um, that this is one of the more discrete ways of doing it. And the ability to do non-public inheritance is what makes this a, a practical approach. A lot of w what you've been saying sounds to me like C++ gives you a wide range of powerful tools, just don't use them all the time. So it sounds to me like... In C++, idioms, the knowledge of how to actually use the language features is particularly important, maybe even more important than in other languages. Yes, I would definitely agree. Um, this is the... Uh, I, in, uh, in recent talks over the last year or so, I've uh, started using the quote from Spider-Man, with great power comes great responsibility. Um, and I'm very... I, I'm, 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 I'm quite... Um, I, I guess uh, black and white on this, and I would say that for many people, I wouldn't recommend C++, and I wouldn't recommend it for all problems uh, at all. I counter-recommend it in many, in many cases, because it is a complex language. Um, criticality of knowledge is that much higher for C++ than it is in many other mainstream languages. It doesn't mean that you can't make a mess in other mainstream languages. Um, like I said, I'm an independent consultant and I do work in languages other than C++. You can make a mess. It's just the criticality, the value that a particular level of knowledge has in C++ that distinguishes between successful design and unsuccessful design is that much more important and the bar is that much higher. Um, you are given a wide variety of features. Um, and uh, many of them, uh, as it were, are the sharp tools of the language. Um, get it wrong, you cut yourself badly. Uh, and this notion is that, as you say, the mastery of the idioms, the familiarity with the approaches and techniques, um, does require some study and some recognition. Uh, it's not a language you can walk into um, and be productive from day zero um, on. It uh, doesn't have necessarily that characteristic. Um, but once you have reached a particular level, um, you are likely to be, uh, you're likely to find yourself 
thinking quite fluidly in it. And once you've reached that level, then it's again that kind of you pass through the gate. The language is irrelevant. Um, and, you know, you, in principle, you could master any language uh, from that point. So, yes, the idioms. And this is one of the interesting things in C++ is this reliance on things that are beyond the language and beyond the library, um, this uh, world of knowledge uh, that... Um, uh, here at the Patents Conference, we try and capture in patent form, but has been captured in uh, uh, in different narratives and uh, arc- article styles and uh, book contexts um, pretty much from the outset, and certainly characterized the second age of C++. One of those idioms that, what when I, um, time back when I did C++, that was one of the important idioms was the canonical form. It was sort of lots of things to remember to do consistently, and easy to forget. Um, so are there now ways to sort of do that in, in one place and have it reused or have that checked or something? Or it's, does it still require this knowledge all over the place? There is still a case of, um, of having to know uh, what you're expecting, but things have actually got um, simpler. The, um, the kind of orthodox canonical class form is not necessarily a solution to a problem. It is a, a regular set of things that are probably there. Uh, it was almost a, it's almost like a checklist. What we've, uh, what we've discovered over time is there are actually easier ways of expressing some of the ideas and the relationships between the operators and um, certain operations. Um, maybe you could sh- just shortly explain what this uh, canonical form is about. Uh, yes, um, this uh, form was originally identified by uh, Jim Kaplan uh, in his book, Advanced C++ Programming Styles and Idioms. Um, and this is the book I had in mind when I said that the second era of C++ was very characterized by focus on um, uh, idioms of, of that nature. And this orthodox canonical class form um, focuses on what am I expecting in my class interface, and it's primarily about the operators, destructors, and constructors and the relationships between them. Uh, it's become more apparent that there are other idioms that we w- really want to apply. For example, it's fairly unlikely that most classes should have an assignment operator or a copy constructor. Um, they are not things that uh, classes that represent entities or service-style objects do not really have value semantics that are uh, useful or meaningful and therefore we would normally find such objects on the heap. Um, we might allocate them on the heap ourselves, we might get a factory to do it, we might uh, do it in a number of different ways. But these objects uh, may also express, be expressed polymorphically, and again there are a number of challenges for people trying to do assignment with polymorphic types in class hierarchies. Uh, the simple summary is don't do it. So the nature of um, idiomatic practice in C++ has in many ways got simpler because originally people were looking at how do I fashion the tools and now people have look at it the other way around. It's like what is the problem I am solving and organizing the language features around that. Um, the columns that I used to write for uh, briefly for C++ report and then for CUJ online uh, were entitled From Mechanism to Method. And that was kind of a reaction to the fact that people focused on mechanisms for using the language uh, features. What I'm interested in is, okay, what is the thing that we are building? I'm expressing an object that has the following characteristics, not uh, C++ characteristics, but domain characteristics. 
Um, from that, I can say this object is not assignable. We have idioms for expressing non-assignability. Um, indeed, if we look a little further afield, we also have libraries that express that. It is possible to inherit the non-copyable uh, capability. I am not copyable at all and express that at the class level. So there are a number of different ideas there that allow us to uh, uh, think about our classes in a different way. Uh, this applies to assignment. Most, most classes are probably not uh, meaningfully assignable. Um, but also when we start working with um, libraries that are based on value semantics, um, such as the STL, what we also find is that for all of those classes where we do want meaningful copy semantics, it's already been taken care of for us. So there is a, there's less attention paid to how do I construct this class in this particular way when I'm allocating loads of things on the heap and I need to manage my resources. Uh, more of these are encapsulated, so you just write the class. The copy behavior comes for free and is correct. The destruction behavior comes for free and is correct. So that kind of distinguishes, again, this is one of those things about the criticality of knowledge and also the way we teach the language. If we look at somebody working with 1990s C++ style and idioms, the chances are they are struggling more than they need to. Um, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's sort of a, a wasted challenge in that sense. They're doing more manual memory management than they need to. They are worrying more about how their pointers are flying than they need to. Um, they are worrying more about uh, which old idioms to apply where new idioms um, simply express things in terms of uh, libraries or better encapsulated types. So our understanding of how to encapsulate types and value-based programming has improved as well. So the idiom landscape has definitely shifted. Um, there's nothing that will necessarily automatically check things. Uh, there are various tools that will check for the usual bits and pieces, uh, likely memory corruption and so on. But uh, what we're really looking at is capturing a style in the midst of all the possibilities that actually makes sense, and it can be considered to be relatively simple. And uh, this, these styles do exist. You see some surprisingly short and elegant pieces of code um, that uh, years ago people would have expressed uh, in ten times the size. Let's take a look at C++ culture. Um, one of the things I always found weird about the C++ culture is the obfuscated C++ contests. Do they still exist, or has the language sort of outgrown them? Well, technically, we can actually argue that the contest never really existed, um, but there were because historically there was the international obfuscated C coding contest, but it was uh, never deemed appropriate to do a C++ one because it would be um, well, there's no challenge. Um, it is very easy to create uh, an obscure. Um, it is very easy to create obscure code in C++, and there's no denying that. And we can go back to the earlier conversation we were having about uh, operator overloading. Um, it is, uh, uh, it, it's not a hard thing to do. Uh, hopefully that people aren't thinking of their code, though, as a sort of executable line noise. We don't really want to recreate Perl um, in the land of C++. What we're looking at is the... Um, Focus sometimes, though, is on cleverness and techniques. I would say that's a very strong aspect of the core C++ culture. And I don't think that is necessarily particularly healthy. It's something I find myself often critical of. Um, and a number, although I spoke favorably of template metaprogramming earlier on, I actually spend a lot of time um, discouraging people from um, uh, this, not because it's a bad idea. It's just that it's not a generally applicable idea. It's a, it's an idea that has a very, uh, 
a very good soft spot beyond which um, you really don't want to be doing this stuff. Um, you will create solutions that are so clever um, that your colleagues will just be stunned into silence. Um, and uh, you have therefore uh, created a job for life. Nobody else can maintain this code. Uh, there are certainly plenty of cleverness around. There is sometimes an obsession with um, performance, um, often an obsession with micro-optimization at the expense of um, architectural thinking. Um, I find in the C++ culture that uh, it is a case of the people under... Many people understand the cost of particular operations, but they do not know the value of their particular designs. And uh, when we look a little further, there are aspects of the C++ culture that have uh, moved forward and embraced things like generic programming, which is not simply generic programming templates. It is a, it's a misapplication of the word generic, um, for which Alex Stepanoff, the inventor of STL, uh, has apologized for. Um, it's a general approach that is based on an al uh, emphasis on algorithms and data structures and the separation uh, thereof. And it's a generalized approach that gives rise to libraries like the STL, um, many of the Boost libraries and so on, uh, and is markedly different from other uh, library styles and language uh, styles that we see. And uh, in terms of our uh, approach to things, it is not a not particularly a classic object-oriented style, although it relies on some of the similar concepts. But in that culture, there is a strong focus on the importance of algorithms um, and uh, the emphasis on uh, economy of expression. However, this is sometimes at the expense of uh, some of the other things that uh, I personally value, which is sort of larger-scale architecture and appreciation uh, of uh, systems thinking. So, curiously, we are at a patents conference, and I find that um, in the C++ world, um, the uh, level of pattern knowledge is surprisingly low, or rather, it is it has plateaued, and it plateaued with the Gang of Four book, um, which is sort of 13 years ago, and uh, there is still a sort of for, for C++ developers, they haven't really moved beyond the idea that there are 23 patterns. Okay, this is a terrible characterization. There are uh, uh, those of you out there that will certainly have done this, but just my usual sampling at various conferences and a show of hand sampling suggests that C++ developers have not really followed this through, and they're kind of stuck with sometimes a design style and a way of thinking about their designs that um, disconnects from modern C++ style and modern C++ capabilities, but also disconnects from broader appreciation of architecture. Um, there are uh, other aspects in C++ culture. There is an emphasis on um, and a care for dependency management. Many people are particularly aware of that. Now, this matters in any language, but it's critical in C++, but it tends to sharpen people people's outlook on how they relate to their classes. At the same time, there is a flip side to this one, and that is um, that there are still certain um, uh, cultural memes, as it were, that uh, still propagate. There's still a lot more inheritance-heavy code than I would expect to see. This is, um, although we talk about a modern C++ style, that's not part of it, but uh, there is the majority of code is written in this style, partly from history, and people are strongly influenced by that. There are some uh, terrible examples of libraries out there um, that have won uh, mainstream uh, adoption. Um, uh, MFC is probably the leading example. Um, uh, this is uh, 
we've been handed down design decisions that didn't look particularly good when they were introduced in the early 90s. And anyone that was a C++ developer who knew this would have pointed that out, but has become a mainstream thing. And it's actually probably caused more problems than it's solved. Um, and there are different ways of um, uh, dealing with questions of framework design. So again, this comes back to a design culture aspect. So design is valued in C++ um, very, very much, but it tends to be a slightly um, different um, style and way of thinking of design uh, than many um, are now pursuing in, the, in uh, not only in other languages, but in other system architectural styles. Many people in C++ uh, are using these, and they are uh, getting benefit from these, but I probably, I guess, the greater majority have not uh, had the opportunity to catch up. How would you characterize the role of Microsoft Visual C++ and the MFC in the, with the overall C++ landscape? Um, is it sort of two different cultures? How are they related? How are they different? Um, it has been very influential on a number of levels. Um, the Microsoft's... Um, Involvement with C++ has been very uh, on and off over the years. And unfortunately, in recent years, it's been very on. And I think that would be the best way of putting putting that. Um, the Historically, um, Microsoft introduced a very modest compiler, and they weren't first into the C++ uh, compiler space. Um, it was a very modest set of capabilities, um, not a bad first effort. That was uh, Microsoft C, C++ 7, um, the precursor of Visual C++ 1. Um, and it wasn't bad for the time, but then they failed to do the basic thing, which is actually upgrade it and update it. Um, so people were left with a very first-age view of C++ for a large part of the early 90s. And there were there were some leaps forward in the compiler um, and uh, the environment uh, at around that time, and uh, that looked pretty good. Then it sort of plateaued again at around Visual C plus plus six, um, which stay which has become a sort of compatibility non-standard, if you like. It's become a uh, a chain around the necks of many developers because it is actually has quite poor compatibility with the standard and has uh, been used for a lot of code. Um, and the, fortunately, the story gets better. Microsoft have a much more engaged C++ team. Uh, now, their conformance, uh, the conformance of their compiler is pretty good. It used to be a case that you wouldn't trust the Microsoft compiler, and I tend to use it all the time now. So um, uh, there's been a real shift. The language um, has been adopted um, more positively. Uh, the compiler compiles the language as opposed to some, somebody else's idea of the language. Um, and so we have that aspect. So the compiler is very influential. The, um, uh, the, when they sort of uh, offered the, uh, an edition of the compiler for download for free, that was quite influential as well. A lot of people now have access to uh, the basic set of tools. So this is, all the, this is all the good stuff with sort of some footnotes. Um, for me, the bad side has always been the MFC. Um, I have, when I first encountered it um, back in 1992, um, I was underwhelmed by um, the design expertise that had gone into it. Um, it looked kind of like a thin wrapper, 
um, written by a C programmer with a VB background on top of the Windows API, um, which is kind of what it was, really. And it's kind of grown from that. It's grown into a sort of whole industry of itself. Now, it's not to say the library is not without use or and it's not without uh, intricacy and detail. Um, and there are a number of techniques in there that can be uh, adopted elsewhere. But it has created a sort of a sort of um, a, a much larger training industry and a much larger book industry and a much larger support industry than it should have done. And it also introduces a number of uh, things that are more complex. Um, putting together a UI in MFC is not necessarily a particularly painless experience. To get the most out of UI design in NFC actually requires you to know quite a lot about the underlying API. So um, in that sense, it's a, we can see that it's not a successful encapsulation. It's a facade um, at that level. Um, you find yourself sometimes struggling with defaults and the approach to trying to create a DSL um, within the language through the use of macros and uh, the support of wizards has only been partially successful. And indeed... Uh, uh, a colleague of mine once described the uh, wizards as sorcerer's apprentices because really they <laughs> they introduce things that cause you problems. Um, they seem to compensate for things that should be in the library. So, yes, I am being highly critical of MFC here, and uh, unashamedly so, and I know that uh, some in Microsoft regard it as a blot on the history. When they started doing things like the ATL, uh, that uh, highlighted a better level of sophistication and understanding of what you can do with C++. Okay, um, one last question. I have the impression that you love C++. Any final words you'd like to say about what you love about C++, why you think it's a great language, or anything else you'd like to add before we wrap up? Um, oh, I think the anything else we'd like to add up before I wrap up is um, uh, uh, I do like... Um, I do like using multiple languages, um, but I do have a particular soft spot, as you've noticed, for C++, um, but not an irrationally uh, uh, driven one. Uh, I, I deal with, as I say, a, a lot of languages. Things I like about C++, well, obviously, there's a certain comfort in familiarity. It is, um, other than, I would say the only other language that I might compile code in that I've been using as long is probably C, but I don't use C on its own very much, so it's probably the language I have used longest continuously, um, and uh, the only way that any other language uh, will be able to compete with that is if I actively don't use C++ for five or six years, then Java will become the next one. Um, but yes, I do enjoy using it. There is a high degree of familiarity. Um, the uh, familiarity also comes from um, the work that I used to do, where uh, really knowing the inside-out uh, uh, detail of the um, standard and the language made a lot of sense. But again, it's the sense that I can apply the language to a number of problems. And um, again, the kind of problems that some of my customers deal with, um, uh, they they deal with things where you are actually... Uh, you care a great deal about the performance, the bits, the bytes, and that level of control. Um, and so... I enjoy working in that space. The frustration for me comes from um, the other aspects of C++ culture and the accidental complexity that the language brings with it um, that we find to find the good design takes probably more effort than it does elsewhere. And I find the, the, uh, the pleasurable experience of just being able to uh, easily uh, uh, involve tests and simple design um, in other languages is sometimes lacking from 
the experience of my clients in C++, although I would say I have a relatively uh, similar experience in C++ because I write my code in a way that can, it, it does that. Um, that's not the experience shared by many people. So um, in, as, in the sense that I love C++, yes, I'd like to share that experience more widely and, uh, and, uh, and encourage people to sort of pursue a, a slightly more economic and more um, modern style in that sense. Thank you very much. Thank you, Anna. Thanks for listening to Software Engineering Radio. If you want more information about the podcast and all the other episodes, visit our website at se-radio.net. If you want to support us, you can donate to the SE Radio team via the website or you can advertise for SE Radio, for example, by clicking on the Dick Reddit Delicious and Slashdot buttons. To contact the team, please send email to team at seradio.net or if it's specific to an episode, please use the comments facility on the website so other people can read and react to your comments. This episode of Software Engineering Radio, as well as all other episodes, are licensed under a Creative Commons license. Please see the website for details. Thanks to Charlie Crow and the Podsafe Music Network for the music used in this show. The song is called Vegas Hard Rock Shuffle. <laughs>